Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, Episode 75, Days of Creation. Today, once again, I have a couple of listeners on my show, uh, this time not to talk about annihilationism, <laughs> finally, uh, but to talk about the age of the Earth and evolution and stuff like that. Uh, my guests and I, whom I'll introduce in a moment, we're all young Earth creationists, uh, and I know that many of you listening um, probably don't uh, hold that view and probably hold it in low regard, uh, but nevertheless, I hope that you'll uh, keep an open mind as you um, listen to our discussion today. One thing that I also hope that um, all of you listening will do um, is get the impression from this conversation as well as the one that I had with listeners last week that that this podcast is as much yours as it is mine. Um, you know, off the air, one of my guests in this discussion you're going to listen to in a minute uh, thanked me for having um, people on that aren't the kinds of big names that I've had on in the past. And, um, you know, the reality is that I think a minority of the people that I've had on the show are quote-unquote big names. Um, I, I enjoy having uh, lay people on the show um, or people that, uh, you know, might have expertise in a particular area or who blog or podcast or something like that but don't have, um, you know, any sort of name, any sort of uh, reputation or anything like that. Um, if, if you're listening and if you fit that category, if, if you think that you have a uh, topic that you're particularly passionate about um, – and, and you'd like to be on the show to discuss it, let me know. Email me at theapologetics at hotmail.com um, because I'm not only interested in having big, famous people on. Um, quite the contrary. I think that um, I think that many people on my show would appreciate listening to the thoughts of people that are more uh, on their same level, kind of like I am because, <laughs> uh, like I've said many times, I'm just an average Joe. So um, as you listen to this and, and, and uh, having listened to the previous discussion with... Um, listeners Joey and Ronnie, I hope that you'll understand that you too are welcome to be on the show, um, you know, within reason. Uh, and uh, I hope you'll contact me with um, your thoughts and ideas if you have an, a, a topic that you'd like to discuss with me on my show. Um, anyway, with that, I'm going to um, not say any more. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and move right into today's pr uh, promo for Glenn Peoples' Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast. Hi, this is Glenn Peoples from Say Hello to My Little Friend, a.k.a. The Beretta Cast. Tune in to hear discussions of philosophy, theology, and even the odd bit of politics from a Christian point of view that doesn't necessarily fit in with the crowd. Search for Say Hello to My Little Friend at the iTunes Store, or check us out online, beretta-online.com. Now, the, the topic that we're going to be discussing today is not one that I think Dr. Peoples is going to be particularly sympathetic to, uh, but nevertheless, his show is great. Uh, you're not going to agree with everything he has to say. I mean, for example, he was instrumental in my conversion to uh, annihilationism, uh, but nevertheless, I think that you'll enjoy uh, his show and, and many of the topics that he discusses, uh, and one thing that you won't be able to charge uh, Glenn with doing is um, is not being a challenge. Um, if, if there's a view that he holds that's different to a view that you hold, um, you're going you're gonna to face a challenge in, in uh, the, the material that Glenn presents, and I hope that you'll um, 
uh, consider it with an open mind. Uh, and when and where you're in agreement, uh, I think that you'll find that Glenn is a powerful defender of the faith and of um, Christian ethics and values and things like that. So do check out uh, the Say Hello to My Little Friend podcast at uh, Beretta-Online.com. Um, and also check out his uh, uh, theme music uh, company, thememusic.co.nz, um, in case you have a podcast or other kind of um, uh, medium that you need uh, theme music for. He did the theme music for this podcast, and I'm uh, indebted to him for it. So, Anyway, uh, with that, let's go ahead and move into today's discussion. He created light, darkness, animals, and us. Come on, let's go. Joining me today are a couple of guests to talk about uh, the age of the earth and evolution. Joining me first today, in in no particular order, is Cowboy Bob Sorensen. Thanks for joining me today, Bob. Thanks for having me. Bob, I'd like to get to know a little bit about you, uh, starting with your testimony, your spiritual beginnings, as it were. How is it that you came to faith in Christ, and, and how did you become interested in theology and apologetics? Well, I was raised in an untied, I mean, United Methodist Church. My father was a pastor, and so I basically got generic and watered-down theology. However, I went for my last three years of high school to a a school that was run by some fundamentalists. So I I was really challenged there, and that's pretty much an understatement. (laughs) I challenged them back, too, because they'd come at me with a doctrine and I'd say, Oh, where do you get that? How, where does it say that in the Bible? And this led to my doing some searching on my own. And from there I realized I needed to know why I should believe the Bible in the first place. So uh, Josh McDowell came in at that time for me, and he, he helped a great deal. That was my introduction to apologetics. The school itself didn't do much in the way of apologetics. This is uh, mid to late 1970s. And around that time, I actually committed my life to Christ and became a very fervent believer. Okay, and, and did you begin your faith believing what you believe now as far as evolution in the age of the universe is concerned? My United Methodist background didn't have much uh, creationist stance or activity. I kind of believed what my father would say, and he believed in a, I believe it, he believed in the gap theory and a kind of repeated catastrophism where there are many global floods. Mm. He did not accept evolution, however. Well, this is ironic that when he was in college, he had a professor that was an evolutionist, gave my father a hard time, and then eventually that professor became a creationist and wrote a pamphlet, Should Evolution Be Taught? <laughs> my, It startled my father when I showed him the pamphlet. And if I remember right, my serious interest in creationism began through watching TV sermons of Dr. D. James Kennedy. And I've lost the details on this, but I came across other creationist materials, especially Institute for Creation Research. A few years later, I attended a creation conference near Chicago. Uh, I I spent my first 40 years living in Michigan, and I actually met Ken Ham, Drs. Henry, and John Morris. Since I believed in the inerrancy of the Bible and I detest compromise, I use the Bible as my standard and can't see any reason to let the ever-changing whims of man-made science, philosophy, 
force fit millions or billions of years into Genesis. Mm. Well, now, from what I understand, you were pretty active in the Young Earth Creationist movement for quite some time, uh, at least before a drifting of sorts, which we'll talk about in a moment. But just what was your involvement in the movement as an advocate of a Young Earth? I obtained material directly from ICR, including uh, broadcast videotapes that I furnished to the local cable station's public access channel. And I also gave church talks using both science and theology, usually in two separate lessons. Sometimes I'd do a Sunday school and then the morning service or morning sermon, then the evening sermon. And about this time, I think it's the mid-90s, PowerPoint wasn't an option, and I used overhead projectors and transparencies. (laughs) One pastor said that he felt like he was back in college because there'd be a point where I'd just be flying through those things. Mm. Uh, I believed in it so much that I didn't charge for my services, but they did do a, many of the churches would do a love offering, and that helped pay for the materials that I had already written, printed, and given away. Still have some of those letters of recommendation. Hmm. Well, so I, I mentioned a drifting of sorts. Uh, tell us about that. What is it that happened, and what sort of lit the fire again and brought you back from your drift? Well, there's several things involved in that. One was that I was hurt by fellow Christians. Hmm. And the falling away was gradual. Some of the drift was because of my own expectations, hoping people would walk the talk. Uh, I did what other I don't like other people doing. I was expecting Christians to be uh, above human and not allowing them to be human. Hmm. But I was disheartened by the actions of Christians. There was infighting, majoring on minors, being judged, and things like that. But another major factor was my own selfish desires. i got to come clean on that. I've had battles with depression. Um, I've had that for most of my life, and that didn't help any. Sure. I quit the medication after several years and stopped the intermittent therapist visits. Now, who needs seeing us? Who needs to go to secular evolutionists for advice? God's word is really what I need. Uh, after being very active in Christian activities, especially creation science, I drifted enough to be putting myself first and God on the back burner. How rude. <laughs> I developed an interest in Buddhism and almost became a Buddhist, but I couldn't get past that very basic uh, Bible filter. If it didn't match up with, like, even then, I still believe the Bible's the word of God, and I tried to combine the two, and my return was gradual. Some of it was due to uh, some of the obstreperous atheists online. Even though I wasn't a practicing Christian at the time, I can't stand bullies. Hmm. And I started taking some of them to task. While I was writing weblogs, I discussed atheism more and more, as well as conservative politics. I noticed a startling similarity between atheist tactics and some of those of people on the left and realized, well, what a coincidence, most atheists are politically on the left. My latent spiritual training came back to mind. I believe the Holy Spirit was drawing me back. I even wrote some distinctly Christian materials when I was not actively being a Christian. One of my favorites was using Psalm 14.1, The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Somebody had said, doesn't actively doesn't mean being an active atheist. People will say it in their hearts and live like there's no God. Mm. 
And I kind of got convicted by some of my own writing. Also, I renewed some old acquaintances with some of the Christian rock that I was so fond of, like DeGarmo and Key, Petro, Whiteheart, Larry Norman, Barry Maguire, and so on. So, on Resurrection Sunday, 2010, I rededicated my life to Christ. After I recommitted my life to Christ, I needed new Bibles. Because I found my old ones, but they were musty from being packed away. I went to the bookstore and bought a new one, an ESV, which I was unfamiliar with, but it was highly recommended. And while I'm looking at this, an old classic song from, I think, 72, Fool's Wisdom by Malcolm and Elwin was playing in my head. Got myself some wisdom from a leatherback book. Got myself a savior when I took a second look. I almost lost it right there in the bookstore. The emotion was so strong. Yeah. Like, hope nobody's looking. And... <laughs> So then I started regaining lost ground, listening to sermon podcasts like Charles Stanley, Alistair Begg, John, John MacArthur. And after a while, my apologetics interests kicked in, and I was listening to those as well. Sure. Well, uh, so and, and why? what keeps you interested in and focused on the issue of origins in the age of the earth uh, today? Part of it is I just had a, a bent for it. I've always liked science, but I have a strong desire to stand up for the truth. People are deceived into thinking that evolution and science prove that there is no God and that the Bible is irrelevant. And this is a war of worldviews. Contrary to the opinions of some apologists and theologians, the question of origins is not a side issue. Evolution is foundational to much evil in the world, and it is the cornerstone of modern atheism. When I started the Question Evolution Day campaign on YouTube, Twitter, and Piltdown Superman, that website, um, atheists went ballistic. <laughs> it's kind of baffling because the Question Evolution Day is to say that people have the right to question evolution and to examine alternative explanations and offer evidence instead of the cherry-picked tendentious evidence that we are required to believe by the fundamentalist evolutionists. Another reason for my continued interest in creation is that to accommodate evolution is bad news for the Christian. Mm -hmm. Theistic evolution, the gap theory, repeated catastrophism, like well, sometimes it's pronounced catastrophism, um, that's the view that my father held, uh, progressive creation where God steps in on occasion and kicks it into gear again. All these require substantial theological eisegesis and tap dancing. I can go on about the days of creation and what I call the domino theory of compromise, where one re compromise requires another, the dominoes fall down. I mentioned that evolution is the basis of all kinds of evils. This doesn't mean that an evolutionist will become evil, but the philosophy is used as a naturalistic basis for behavior. Like social Darwinism, <clears throat> that philosophy has been detrimental to society. And while I was preparing for this tonight, I was shown something on a weblog that um, a three-year-old girl is denied a kidney transplant due to her um, mental disabilities. It was a quality of life oh. argue. And um, also, um, Hitler was helping evolution along. Eugenicists like Margaret Sanger used evolution to justify their positions. Uh, 
uh, Bertrand Russell. For that matter, evolution is used to justify abortion since that thing in the womb is not fully human yet. Mm-hmm. Hackle's faked embryo drawings, though they're discredited, are still thought to be correct by pro-abortionists. Evolution is used to justify socialism and communism. Karl Marx said, Darwin's work is most important and suits my purpose in that it provides a basis in natural science for the historic class struggle. So his political struggle gets a natural basis as well. So when we dare to question evolution, people go nuts. If there was no creator, then we could make our own rules. And many people want to be their own gods. Yeah, that's definitely true, and I think that those are some good reasons why this issue isn't uh, tangential, and we'll be talking about that more. Uh, I want to get the location of uh, your mm-hmm. blogs, but before I do, I, I'd like to give you an opportunity to really briefly pitch Question Evolution Day. When is that, and uh, how can people find more information about it? Well, it surged on uh, Internet searches because at first, if you put Question Evolution Day in quotes, you wouldn't get anywhere. Now it's all over the three major uh, blog or internet search engines. And the main address, though, is piltdownsuperman.com and look for the Question Evolution Day tab. The first video is my pitch for what it is, that we should be able to question it without uh, being ridiculed, harassed, censured people have even lost their jobs for not being an evolutionist even though that had nothing to do with the job Mm. and there's a second video by pp simmons about question evolution which uh, came from the creation ministries international site and they have a great tract called 15 questions to ask evolutionists and that tract i asked them can i use your tract and make a text video and that's the third video. I got their permission, and they said they liked it. Well, cool. And this is uh, coming up this Sunday on the 12th of February. Is that right? Yes, Darwin's birthday. <laughs> I like it. Now, yes, I'm not monkeying around. Yeah, but I'm ching. Uh, now, <laughs> you mentioned Piltdown Superman. Uh, you actually have a few blogs. Um, can you tell us where my listeners can go to find those and sort of what the areas of focus each of those blogs have? Okay, I'll limit it to three of them. <laughs> okay. Um, my three primary weblogs, and I have a conversational writing style that was pointed out to me, and I agree that it's a stream of thought. The first one is Stormbringer's Thunder. That was started when I was pretty much apostate. It's multi-purpose, dealing with atheism, evolution, ebook readers, software recommendations, though I do not bash Microsoft because people think it's a cool thing to do. I don't. I'm using Windows 7 right now. I write about the wife's cat, deaths in the family, all sorts of things. And it's written in character, um, more so when I started. I've got both real and and imagined people in my crew, and I mess with the readers. And my mafioso and my government agent... When they're reading it, you kind of think I'm sounding a little bit like this, but if I keep going with this voice, I'm going to sound like Tony Danza, so I'd better come back. <laughs> and so I was just doing in-character, multi-purpose, but after I came back to Jesus, many of my articles took on a more spiritual theme, and several people have been, and sorry, several of them have been outright evangelistic, and some apologetics crept in. 
And after I kept doing this, I realized I need to do a separate one for and about Christians. So I came up with a soldier for Jesus. Because we are in a spiritual warfare. Now, Satan's angry with me right now for promoting creationism, and he's turning up the heat. Uh, it goes with the territory. A soldier for Jesus does not do the sensationalistic cast out a demon behind every shrubbery approach. Instead, it's about growing in the word, being strong in faith, standing for the truth, and spreading the gospel. I have several articles there dealing with the importance of Genesis and, and with spiritual compromise. And that Soldier Weblog also has articles dealing with things that helped drive me from the faith for, and I was gone for about 15 years, by the way. I also included warnings to people today. There are Christians who act angry and prideful, and they act pretty much like the angry atheists who troll online. Yeah. Um, there's a Calvinism is the one true gospel site, and I uh, told the guy about that, and he hit me with an angry and prideful response. There are Arminians who say Calvinism is damnable heresy, and they are all going to hell. <laughs> uh, yes, that's what we need, more division in the body of Christ. So I say, what, major on minors, much, Millicent? The essentials for salvation, yes, contend earnestly for the faith, but to elevate non-essentials for the sake of pride, ego, and being right, thereby introducing more strife in the body of Christ, is deplorable. Yeah. My interest in apologetics and dislike of compromise grew by the Spirit's leading, so I made evolutionary truth by Piltdown Superman. Now, the reason for the name is... Two parts. One is that Piltdown Man is a, a massive embarrassment to evolutionists. They got fooled by that for decades. Doctoral theses were written on it. <laughs> and the other part is there's a really nifty tune by the late, great Ronnie James Dio called Sunset Superman. So I put them together. Mm. And although I am a biblical creationist, the main purpose is to get people thinking and realizing that evolution is not the fact that it's proclaimed, it's not a slam dunk, that there are many flaws in it, and the evidence points to a creator more than to evolution. Yeah. I emphasize failings in evolutionary theories to explain the evidence, and that creationism and the Genesis flood support this much better. And by the way, which theory of evolution? People say, uh, do you believe in evolution? Well, there's not just one, and they're not uh, all in agreement. Mm. And uh, not all, just like not all scientists accept the Big Bang, some postulate even stranger things like the plasma string theory. They don't all agree on the dinosaur extinction models. The most popular is coming from an asteroid hitting the Earth 65 to 70 million years ago. Some theories are so silly, one of them is even chronic constipation. <laughs> So I, I bring things up that hopefully will get people to think. My links page on that site has a range of biblical creation and intelligent design sites. But since I see old earth creationism as destructive to the gospel, which we'll get to, I know, um, I did not include those. Okay, well, thanks for sharing those with us. Um, I'll include links to each of those blogs in the show notes. And, you know, I just want to thank you again for being here. And uh, I'd like to turn now to my second guest today. Again, second in no particular order. Uh, his name is Nathan Schumacher. Uh, thanks to you too, Nathan, for joining me today. It's great to be with you today, Chris. Thank you for having me on. 
Definitely. Uh, now let's get to know you as well, starting with what may have once been a testimony of sorts, your conversion, if I can call it that, to old earth creationism. Uh, tell us about your spiritual upbringing and how you came at one time, although not the case now, to hold to a position different from the one that we're talking about today. Sure. Well, I was brought up in an evangelical Christian missionary family, and by God's grace, I came to faith in Christ at a very young age. So I was familiar with the creation account early on, and throughout my growing up years, I always understood Genesis 1 as a literal, historic uh, account of creation. Hmm. And of course, that included the notion of the creation days as being uh, literal 24-hour periods. Uh, I believed in a 6,000-year-old creation. Uh, I can't recall an occasion during my growing up years when I ever questioned that. Mm. I was aware uh, uh, that millions and billions of years were necessary for a purely naturalistic view of origins, such as neo-Darwinian evolution. But as far as I can recall, I had never been exposed to the notion that millions of years could be reconciled with the teaching of creation in Genesis. Mm. After uh, I graduated high school, I attended a uh, conservative Christian college that I won't name, but it was there that I was first exposed to that notion. And I distinctly remember my Old Testament uh, class where the professor set forth the idea that the uh, creation days consisted of vast ages of time. I believe um, the impression I got from him was that it was a credible orthodox position within evangelical Christianity. And he seemed to actually favor that view. And I'm, I don't know for sure, but I'd, presumably it was the day-age theory that he was uh, speaking of. Right. Uh, several years later, I had the opportunity to attend a lecture by Dr. Hugh Ross at an unnamed seminary. That I, I wasn't attending the seminary, but I knew some, some people who were. And, uh, <clears throat> of course, this uh, appearance there... Uh, created quite a stir because I didn't know it at the time, but Dr. Ross is quite controversial. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I bought, uh, bought several of his books uh, at that lecture, and I was drawn into his teaching on creation and vast ages of time, that the Earth is 4.6 billion years old, and that the universe is several times older than that. And that is a position that I was sympathetic to for many years. Sure. You know, just as a side note, it's funny you mentioned Hugh Ross because uh, several years ago, not long after I had become a Christian, uh, Hugh Ross actually came to my place of business, Microsoft, and uh, gave a um, a talk. Uh, so it's interesting. But anyway, there's no point in mentioning that. Now, but I do want to talk next about um, your deconversion, so to speak, because although you were sympathetic to this kind of old earth creationism, you hold a, you know, the position that Bob and I have today. What, what is it that convinced you to return to a young earth view? Well, about three years after I attended that talk by Hugh Ross, I was on a road trip with my brother, Jeff, who had with him a tape series from a young earth creationist by the name of Ken Ham. Yeah. Uh, I know you're both familiar with Ken. Uh, in that series, I heard Ken directly confront the teaching of Hugh Ross using the authority of the scriptures. And as you can imagine, uh, being enamored of Hugh Ross, I was a little annoyed. And <laughs> I also, I found Ken's style quite abrasive. Uh, here's an Australian bashing Americans. Here's a, a person who likes to who doesn't like cats, I like cats, you know, things like that. And but but for the most part, I just did not want to believe that I had um 
subscribe to, to incorrect teaching for all those years. And it had only been about three or four years since, since I had first been exposed to th this notion, but I just didn't want to hear it. Yeah. Um, and I had the desire to just turn the tape off because we were driving in the car and listening to the tape. But I also didn't want to be rude because it was Jeff's tape series and it was his car. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> but as we listened, one lecture after another, the best way I can describe my experience, and I hate to use that word because I'm not a huge experience kind of person, <laughs> uh, is that I was gripped. Yeah. And I found myself deeply convicted as I realized what I had been doing for those years, that I had been subjecting the Bible to a humanistic authority of man's opinion. After that time, uh, I graduated college about a year later or so, um, and my wife and I were married, and we began attending a Reformed church, uh, and we've been in Reformed churches ever since. But I have to say, in the context of this discussion uh, of the age of the earth, that there's something that really grieves me. Mm. Reformed church people are good at upholding the authority of God's word in matters of theology and God's sovereignty and salvation, election, things like that. Mm -hmm. But when it comes to the age of the earth and origins in general, we're a lot less reformed than <laughs> some of our fellow evangelicals. Yeah. And a good number of well-known reformed theologians and pastors of our day even embrace neo-Darwinian evolutionary theory, which I believe is really antithetical to the entire message of the Protestant Reformation. Yeah. Okay, and now what is it today that keeps you interested in origins in the age of the earth? What, what fuels your passion now? Well, at least for now, and I think this is still the case, I, I could be wrong on this, but I believe that the majority of Christian evangelicals are still united against a purely naturalistic view of origins. Hmm. Uh, that is, the emergence of life from chemicals in a primordial sea and the process of gradual descent with modification. Yeah. It's, it's my understanding, anyway, that, that, uh, that the majority still identify that as a position of compromise right. with regard to the authority of God's Word. Um, <clears throat> but on the other hand, uh, belief in an old earth is not that way. It, it's much more subtle, and to many it seems easier to reconcile with the Bible. But I see it also as a position that compromises the authority of God's Word. Um, another reason I'm interested in the age of the earth is that the young earth position precludes the prevailing modern naturalistic view of origins, which is neo-Darwinian evolution. So, in other words, if someone who believes in evolution would find the evidence for a young earth to be compelling, then he would also naturally be forced to reconsider his thinking regarding origins. Sure. And perhaps God would use that to change his underlying attitude regarding the authority of the Bible. Um, fundamentally, the underlying issue is not about the age of the earth, and it's not about evolution or the origin of life. It's about authority. Are we going to believe what God has said? And if we don't believe what he has said regarding creation, I believe that demonstrates an attitude that will lead us into more serious error. Sure. Yeah, I, I, I agree with everything you said. I think that's those are some good points. Uh, now, I want to dive right into the topic. Um, thank you, by the way, for being here as well. Um, now, continuing with you, Nathan, until 10 years ago, uh, you didn't think that it really mattered what a Christian believes on the age of the earth. Um, I know that's not the case now, and we'll talk about why, but why then uh, why did you think that it didn't matter? What was your rationale? 
Well, the lecture I heard by Hugh Ross uh, was on string theory and extra dimensionality. And it wasn't until later that I became aware of his belief on the age of the Earth, races of human-like creatures that lived before Adam, <laughs> billions of years, things like that. Um, those things would have really struck me as strange at the time if I had heard that, and I'm not sure I would have latched onto his books as much as I did sure. uh, and his teaching if I had understood that he believed races of hominoid-like creatures roamed the earth before Adam and Eve. <laughs> but by the time I learned that he taught some of those things, I had become so enamored of his work that I, just, uh, I was willing to uh, turn a blind eye to his teaching in some of those areas. And that blind eye is easy to justify. Um, after all, he might subscribe to some strange views in one area, but it doesn't seem that what you believe about the age of the earth affects anything important, right? I mean, we hear that all the time. Yeah. Uh, and, and on one level, that seems like a legitimate argument. Um, <clears throat> for example, we're justified through faith in the person and work of Christ, not through belief in a young earth. Our Christian life, holiness, witness, none of these seem directly related to belief in a young earth. So what's the big deal? Um, even many who hold to a belief in a young earth don't think it's important. And at the time, I didn't think it was important. Yeah. Uh, now I do think it's important. Sure. Uh, and, and, you know, I've shared a similar exper experience. I, I also have found that most of the people I've spoke, spoken to, even the ones that share my view, uh, as well as the ones that held to the view you formerly had, thought that this wasn't an important topic. But, but Bob, turning to you, um, or maybe I should call you Cowboy Bob throughout the interview. Uh, no, it don't matter. <laughs> okay. Uh, in an email that you wrote me asking if I'd be interested in having you on the show, you wrote this. You wrote, quote, I would like to explain why evolution is a root cause of so much disbelief, and when Christians compromise on the Bible, it encourages disbelief, and people leave the church, unquote. Can, can you go ahead and explain that briefly? Before I do that, I'd like to comment on something Nathan said. Uh, I've heard it said before that a lot of Christian colleges, the science department is young earth, and they go into the Old Testament or the theology department and they do the compromising hmm. so that's very ironic that's, that's answer, true and that's that's sad yeah but to answer your question on why evolution is a root cause first i have to emphasize that creationists are not calling old earthers theistic evolutionists and so on unsaved or anything like that but there's their theology is severely lacking Richard Dawkins said Darwin made it possible to be an intellectually fulfilled atheist. Although I think it's just another excuse for an atheist, evolution is the cornerstone of their worldview, as I mentioned. And it's also a foundation for the liberal theology mindset. Some apologists are lousy theologians. Yep, I'm blunt. I'm a cowboy. And cowboys are state of mind. <laughs> I, I lived out west, uh, west side of Michigan. I can name several theologians that are excellent at apologetics and claim to believe in the inerrancy of Scripture, but then compromise at the beginning in Genesis. Yeah. One that I don't like to throw people under the bus, so that's why I'm holding off on names, but he said he will not let science dictate how he will understand the Bible, so he rejects evolution. Then he says science has proven that the earth is billions of years old, so he's an old earther. Yeah. Now, the evidence that he accepts for the age of the Earth is used the same kind of scientific interpretations that he uses to reject evolution. And here's the message they send. 
I can give you evidence for the existence of God and the reliability of the Bible, but it doesn't mean what it says back in Genesis. Now, what kind of a message is that? Sure. And one way it affected the church is, and this is something that just came up uh, earlier today, um, the lecturer wasn't uh, sure of the name, but the name is something like Gene Austra. In 1753, was doing some uh, work on the Bible, and he um, he said the different divine names in the Old Testament point to different sources. Elohim was from one author, Yahweh was from another author, oh, yeah. and at the time of writing the Pentateuch, men were not advanced enough to use more than one name for God. And that's an example of evolutionary thought. Remember, yeah. Darwin didn't invent evolution, it existed long before him, he just popularized it. Of all scripture that Jesus quoted, he used the first 11 chapters of Genesis most of all. Doctrines all through the New Testament keep coming back to Genesis, the book that all those writers quoted most. I recommend that Christians read and consider Ken Ham's book, Already Gone, which shows how and why young people are leaving the church. So evolutionism is essential to atheism, liberal theology, and to causing doubts so that people abandon their faith. When it comes to Christians compromising, and I'd like to yell this loud enough to blow out the speakers, but why? <laughs> why tamper with the plain reading of Scripture to cram in huge amounts of time? Is it for acceptance among your friends and peers? I think some people get on a bit of a bandwagon um, acceptance thing of, oh, if my favorite, my hero um, accepts an old earth, so I will too because I like his books. Uh, some of it is ego, because they want to look smart to other people. Yeah. So I, I just don't get it. And if you look at Proverbs 36, where it says, don't add to his word, lest he'll reprove you and prove you to be a liar. And over in Revelation 22, 18 and 19, it talks about adding, if you add to his word, he's going to add the plagues to you. Now, that's not a literal thing. I mean, I... That's uh, a symbolic, but I think it shows God's attitude. If we go to Second um, Peter two eighteen and nineteen, he indicates that the word of God is confirmed, and that it's better to heed that. He he took the word of God more seriously for us than when he heard God speak at the time of the transfiguration. Mm. There are false teachings that are running rampant in the church. People want to follow the teachings of Matt Slick's buddy, the Reverend Dr. E.R. Tickler and <laughs> Dr. Feelgood. Mm. And to stand for something unpopular like creation and a young earth and the foundations of the faith is unthinkable to people who want feel-good, opinion-based, experiential religion. New Age philosophies are based on evolution, too. So when somebody says, yeah, the people from the Flying Saucers came and talked to me, and well, what'd they tell you? We are more highly evolved, and we want, and they want to help us in our evolution. And that includes evolving away from our silly spiritual ideas and to evolve away from Jesus being God and the only way to salvation, that you are God. Sure, yeah. 
Well, you know, turning back to you, Nathan, it's, I'm glad that uh, Bob mentioned Already Gone by Ken Ham, because in that book, um, I was really moved by what seemed like a really good argument that uh, children raised in the church are uh, raised to believe in an old earth or an evolution. They, they Basically, what they think is that uh, the, the Bible can be trusted in certain, you know, spiritual matters, but when it comes to historical data, it really can't be trusted. And so then the question becomes, well, why trust any of it? Do you find uh, that what Bob says is true, at least to some extent, that that an acceptance of evolution or even just an old earth often leads to disbelief in the Bible as a whole? I think that those two are definitely related. And I can see some ways in which uh, accepting evolution can actually lead you to uh, a further state of of, of disbelief, Mm. uh, as the question is. But for the most part, I really see that it's the other way around. I think that unbelief is the cause, not the effect that unbelief is at the root of both old earth and and evolutionary thinking. And I want to be quick to clarify that I'm not talking now this is something that uh, that Cowboy Bob said and that I appreciate very much and I want to echo this. Um, <clears throat> this is not the kind of unbelief that persists in the unregenerate heart. We're not saying that these people are unsaved, and I want to be careful not to give that impression Mm. that Christians who believe in an old earth are either unsaved or somehow less sanctified. Uh, No, they're my brothers in Christ, and many of whom are far more mature and sanctified than I am. Uh, So, and and also, I'm not accusing anyone of intentional compromise. And uh, finally, while I want to come across as confrontational, I want to do it with humility because I realized that one day I happened to be listening to a message and the Holy Spirit convicted me and he worked repentance in my heart and that is not something that I can take credit for. And uh, it is my hope and prayer that likewise God will use this conversation we're having today to affect the similar change in the thinking of some believers. Yeah, definitely. That's my hope as well. And uh, fortunately, the Bible is replete with examples of weak men, um, you know, being used by God to produce those kind of effects. And the three of us, I think, are certainly uh, weak men in a lot of ways. So, yeah, that's my hope as well. Now, not all of those who accept evolution or an ancient age of the universe abandon the Bible outright, um, or at least they don't think they're doing so. And instead, they'll argue that biblical passages that the three of us think teach special creation on a young earth don't actually teach that and probably ought to be understood in a different way. Now, if we believe that the Bible's true, then obviously we expect that the evidence of general revelation, that is the creation, um, that we acquire through scientific and other means will line up with a special revelation in scripture and if they don't appear to it very well could be that our interpretation of the scientific evidence is wrong but it might also be that our interpretation of the biblical evidence is wrong bob would you agree with that Uh, to some extent because uh we're human and we all have our own minds and we can think about things um i suspect some people simply not bothered to think Mm. they're conditioned to believe that evolution is true and they don't have any reason to question it. Um, Many Christians who do not know their Bible, God must have used evolution as a means of creation. I used that myself when I started at that fundamentalist school. I had someone upset about my Question Evolution Day promotion on Facebook and hit me with, um, I believe because I believe, which is pretty much fideism. Mm. And... um, well, he, I believe because I believe that God used evolution. I asked him to explain why and showed him scriptures, and he wasn't having anything to do with it after that. 
Now, I understand that C.S. Lewis left his theistic evolution leanings as he learned more. Long ago, I learned that we read the Bible in the manner it was intended to be taken. If it was written as history, read it that way. Poetic, with phrases like four corners of the earth or the pillars or something, read it as poetic. Mm -hmm. Depends on the book and the context. Context is extremely important. People like to find an excuse to things out of context and jump on that, yet they do not complain like when the weather forecast, we blatantly use the term sunrise. No, the sun doesn't (laughs) rise. The oldest excuse to cram in long ages is to say that yom, the word translated day usually, does not always mean a literal day. Um, Yom is used... I've heard it uh, pronounced Yom and Yom, so I'm not sure. It's used 359 times outside of Genesis, with only a couple of exceptions when it has an indicator, as I call it, evening, morning, an ordinal number. It means a literal day. In Genesis 1, we have it nailed down, because God defined day just then. Evening and morning, the third day. So we've got evening, morning, and the ordinal. So there's three times he's saying, hey, this is what a day is. Hmm. But people find those very few exceptions, and then they want the exception to become the rule. Aha, that means I don't have to take it for what it says. <laughs> yeah. And this is what I call the domino effect of compromise based on presuppositions and worldviews such as science has proved the earth is billions of years old and the Bible is not the word of God, but may contain it. You have to use theological gymnastics when these dominoes are falling because one compromise leads to another. If it doesn't mean what it says in Genesis 1 and 2, can we trust it everywhere else? That's, I think, a serious concern. A straightforward, plain reading of Genesis shows that it's intended to be considered as history, not poetry, not allegory. People who want to force a, the ideas of a local flood or a tranquil flood, they don't know much about water, and force <laughs> in theistic evolution, progressive creation, the gap, the day age, and all those kinds of things have to deal with Exodus 20.11. So uh, just look at uh, Exodus and the Ten Commandments. Okay, was that literal history? Um then you get to the part where God made the earth in six days. Okay, now what are you going to do? And the, there's also the question, why did God take six days? Why not long ages, or why didn't he do it in an instant? Um, Exodus 20.11 tells us that it's an example for us. Also to tamper with Yom, God did not create in six indefinite periods of time and rest for an indefinite period of time. That's a lousy example for us and would mess with your paycheck. (laughs) Or were the Ten Commandments just allegory and not historical too? Romans 5.12 tells us that death entered the world through Adam's sin. Many creationists point to this verse to indicate that there is no death of any kind before Adam sinned. And old earthers will say that it only applies to the death of humans. Then I would point out Romans 8, 19 to 22 tells us that all creation is suffering because of the effects of sin and the culmination of everything at the end times, the revealing of the sons of God, tells us that sin affects creation. The final days set creation itself free. Mm. 
similar thing to think about is simply the fact that God called his creation very good. Yeah. It doesn't seem likely that if Adam and Eve were standing on rock layers full of dead things and death and suffering, um, that God would say, that, yep, you're standing on very goodness. Second <laughs> uh, Peter 3, 5-7 says that the world perished by a flood and the coming judgment is by fire. So tell me, will that coming judgment be a tranquil local event too? Jesus destroys the absurd notion that hominids were evolving along doing their old thing when suddenly... God endowed a couple with consciousness, and they became Adam and Eve. Jesus said, from the beginning he made them male and female. Mark 10, 6. Over and over you see Jesus, Paul, Peter, and the others refer to Genesis as authoritative and treat it as history. Now, if they came to bring the truth, and we know they did, they missed some great opportunities to say, well, you know, the beginning of Scripture is allegorical, not historical. Instead of compromising our understandings of Scripture because of our current understanding of ever-changing views of man, we need to adjust our thinking about science, if we believe the Bible is true. Yeah. Interestingly, I was in a Facebook group for apologetics. Someone brought up a, um, Hugh Ross. I said I wasn't all that thrilled with him. The old earthers in the group got mad about it. They didn't want to discuss science and theology. And they got angry and they acted like evolutionists. They also said, take the discussion to zombie land. No, I don't think zombie land would like such an off-topic uh, discussion. <laughs> I left that group. <laughs> yeah. um, by the way, it also runs ruins theistic evolution and progressive creation that God stopped creating and rested on the seventh day. People have to add things to Scripture to get those other interpretations of creation. Ever heard of the serpent seed doctrine? That's where in the Garden of Eden, even the serpent did the wild thing, and then she born Cain from that union. Wow. Now, all it takes is just adding to what the scripture says. Remember, people actually believe this thing. Yeah, sure. Well, what about you, Nathan? Evolutionists, old earthers, and, and just to be clear, I, I don't mean to lump them together too closely, but they'll say that they're just trying to reconcile general and special revelation in this way, in, in the way that I described earlier. Um, I mean, let's be honest. This is something we all have to do, right? Reconcile the two spheres of revelation with one another. Uh, I agree with that statement insofar as it's meant to say that in reality God's special and general revelation do not and cannot conflict with one another. Yeah. But that's the key there, in reality. Uh, people are often oblivious to the fact that what they think they know about general revelation is not a fact uh, or a true fact, but an interpretation of a, a fact. Yeah. Um, scientists observe facts. But in order for those facts to have any meaning, they have to be interpreted. And interpretation always requires a source of authority. So let me provide an example uh, to you. A scientist can determine the number of lead-236 atoms in a sample of rock. Uh, he has observed a present fact about that sample. But when he concludes, based on that number, that the rock sample is 1.3 million years old, now he is interpreting that fact by applying the authority of uniformitarianism to it. And there's a long word we're going to 
come back to. Uh, so we have to ask, is uniformitarianism a proper authority for interpreting the facts of nature? But this isn't a question most people think to ask, because they're oblivious to the fact that conclusions based on general revelation are interpretations. Yeah. And those interpretations are uh, authority-based. Now, why is that important? Well, if your authority for interpreting nature is extra-biblical, and you use the conclusions based on those interpretations to determine what Genesis 1 means, then what you are doing, and this just comes down to logic, what you're doing is you're using an extra-biblical authority to interpret the Bible. Now, a lot of people don't have a problem with that, but I suspect that the majority of Christians who do this are not okay with that. They just don't understand what they're doing. And, and finally, I would just ask the question, when the conclusions based on facts from these differing sources of revelation, general and special, seem to be in tension, when there seems to be a conflict between those two, which source typically gets reinterpreted? <laughs> and which, which source emerges the process relatively unscathed? Right. Uh, for instance, when we see that the notion of a global flood is in conflict with our modern interpretation of the geologic column, what gets modified, the flood or the column? Do we re-examine the dominant modern view of the geologic data? Or do we find a way to read a local flood into the text of Genesis? The way we reconcile these things reveals what authority reigns supreme in our minds. Yes, you're, you're definitely right. And in a letter that you recently sent to a fellow podcaster and apologist whom I'm not going to name because of the respect I have for him, um, you explained this in more detail, this issue of, of, of authority and why it's not merely this attempt to reconcile the Bible and the world we see around us that's a problem. Um, you know, before we get into even more specifics, what, what is the problem that you see with the approach taken by Christians who believe in evolution or in ancient earth? <clears throat> Well, like you, Chris, I also hold this particular apologist in the highest respect, and I would certainly recommend his uh, podcast and website. They're great resources for Christians. Uh, but the concern I express to him is that if we are willing to subject the interpretation of the Bible to one source of extra-biblical authority, then why not another? Why grant privileged status to uniformitarianism, and again, there's that word, we're going to define it later, uh, when there are a slew of other such sources that are seemingly as valid, uh, such as naturalism, non-biblical theology, tradition, lifestyle preferences. Uh, we could go on and on. Yeah. My objective was, and is, to expose a subtle, slippery slope in this kind of special versus general revelation thinking. Because the same kind of reasoning by which you can accept the modern geologist's interpretation of the general uh, revelation today can lead you tomorrow to accept the paleontologist's interpretation of that general revelation, and now you believe in Darwinian evolution. Now you read a headline that says species have been discovered in which homosexual activity is normal. <laughs> well, the same reason by which you reinterpreted creation and the origin of life in Genesis 1 now allows you to reinterpret Paul's words regarding homosexuality in Romans 1. So, to summarize that, while I think the old earth position is based on an incorrect interpretation of Genesis, I wouldn't be nearly as concerned about it if I didn't see it as an indicator of something far more serious. And that is an underlying attitude that has the potential to take us places we never thought we'd go.
Yeah. Yeah, that's definitely true. Um, you mentioned uniformitarianism. You mentioned naturalism, non-biblical theology. Before we move on, do you want to uh, explain what it is that you're referring to using those words? I'd love to, and that is very important. Uh, the first term, uniformitarianism, describes a scientific theory of the 18th century, and it was first proposed by Scottish geologist uh, James Hutton, and but it was really popularized by Charles Lyell, who wasn't a scientist at all, but he was a British lawyer uh, who knew a lot about science. Uh, but it was popularized through the work uh, of uh, Lyell called Principles of Geology. Uh, this theory gained popularity very rapidly, and it dominates modern scientific thought to this very day. A basic definition of uniformitarianism is the extrapolation of presently observed rates into the unobserved past. Hmm. So we uh, observe a process, we measure its present rate, and I do say present, present rate, and make conclusions about the history of that process, when it started in particular. And... Uh, now, I'm going to provide an illustration here of how this, how this works, okay. and it might seem kind of humorous, but suppose I determine that Cowboy Bob lives approximately 1,600 miles from my house. Now, Bob and I hit it off, and he decides he's going to take a road trip to visit me, and at the very end of the trip, I shoot his car with a radar gun and observe him driving down my street at a rate of 25 miles per hour. He pulls up into my driveway... Uh, he opens the door. I say, howdy, Bob. And I whip out my calculator, um, and I punch a, a quick calculation. I tell, tell him, so you left your house 64 hours ago, right? Bob <laughs> says, no, I left my house 24 hours ago. Uh, let's, let's make it 27 hours ago. I think that's the number I came up with. <clears throat> he says, uh, my wife observed me leave. She noted the time and posted the time on Facebook. Cowboy Bob left such and such time. I reply, sorry, Bob. Bob, you must have misinterpreted the text of what your wife wrote, because I have it all right here. <laughs> and then I confidently proceed to publish newspaper articles and school textbooks, proclaiming that Bob's trip took 64 hours, despite there having been a reliable record of when he actually left home. Hmm. And you, you say, Nathan, how arrogant, how foolish. Well, where did I go wrong? You know, where what steps were sound and what steps weren't. Well, I correctly determined how fast Bob's car was traveling down my street, and that was easy because the radar gun did the science for me. <laughs> but, but that step was within the realm of operational science. Uh, but my historical reconstruction of the unobserved past was a different thing altogether, wasn't it? Yeah. Now, I want to read you a, a quote from Charles Lyell himself. Remember, Lyell is the one who really popularized this theory in the 19th century. Uh, in which he made an interesting admission regarding uniformitarianism. And uh, I quote, The philosopher at last becomes convinced of the undeviating uniformity of secondary causes, and guided by his faith in this principle, he determines the probability of accounts transmitted to him of former occurrences. Hmm. So Charles Lyell himself conceded that uniformitarianism was a philosophy that one had to be committed to by faith before any conclusions could be made regarding past events. Now, I doubt you could get scientists to admit that today, but <laughs> the quote is there. It doesn't lie. And I do have references for, for this quote and the others that I have and will present uh, if anyone's interested. 
uh, uniformitarianism has never been proved, just assumed. And as I'm trying to demonstrate today, it's not only an extra-biblical assumption, it's also an unjustified assumption, and I would even go far as to say a falsified assumption. Mm-hmm. We know that events and processes haven't always been the same as they are now. Throughout history, humans have observed cataclysm, uh, or another word would be catastrophism, and recorded their effects. We have an we have an inspired, inerrant historical record of cataclysm on a global scale. Yeah. Uh, moving on, and, and these uh, that's uniformitarianism. The, the next two are shorter. Uh, naturalism, also known as materialism is simply the assumption of purely material causes which excludes the supernatural. So one example of naturalism would be the idea that life arose through the interactions of chemicals. But naturalism is also a subtle element within uniformitarianism thinking as well. Uh, Using the analogy of Bob's road trip, it assumes that there is no driver controlling the car. (laughs) And in fact, the very existence of the car can be explained apart from an intelligence source. Uh, naturalism is more the driving force behind evolution than it is in old Earth. But I mention it because evolution is a part of this discussion. Yeah. And finally, uh, the third one, and uh, I've, I've only picked three here to talk about, but uh, non-biblical theology is one that I haven't heard discussed a whole lot. I haven't read a whole lot on this, but it's just something that I've thought a lot about myself. And <clears throat> let me read you another quote. This one's from Charles Darwin. Uh Begin the quote here. I cannot persuade myself that a beneficent and omnipotent God would have designedly created the Ichneumonidae with the express intention of their feeding within the living bodies of caterpillars, or that a cat should play with mice. Not believing this, I see no necessity in the belief that the eye was expressly designed. End quote. Uh, you know, we don't have time for others, but. I do have a whole bunch of similar quotes from Charles Darwin and and other um, evolutionists. But to, fer- to paraphrase that uh, quote to its essence, uh, Charles Darwin is basically saying this. I refuse to worship or even believe in the existence of a creator God who will, uh, would allow his creation to suffer. Yeah. So, so the logic goes, if, I were, if God were the creator, this is how he would or should have created. That's not what we see in the world. Therefore, God is not the creator. And I think this is a powerful demonstration of how false theology drives an interpretation of facts to a false conclusion. And Darwin's own opinion was his ultimate authority, as we could see from that quote. So you see how it all comes back to humanism, which is the basis for all these uh, sources of authority that are non-biblical. Man decides how God created Man decides what kind of God he wants to worship. Here's an idea. Let's believe God when he tells us in his word both who he is and how he created. (laughs) Yeah, I think that's a great idea. Uh, Bob, turning back to you. So the question is, uh, based on everything that Nathan has just said, by what standard or by what authority are we to subject our interpretation of the scientific data? How how do you answer that question and, and on what grounds do you answer it the way you do? I'd like to chime in on something that Nathan said about the uniformitarian assumptions. I have a video in my logic lessons where it looks like to people, it's a big prank, there's a guy flying across from one building to the next. What they don't know is one guy goes into one building, people on top throw a doll to the second building, 
and then another guy comes out of that. So it's just based on some assumptions and not enough data. Mm. Yeah. So on the uh, interpretations of the scientific data, it's subject to interpretation and modification, and we see in all of our alleged evolutionary ancestors and failed proofs of transitional forms. There should be billions of transitional forms. We should even see them today. If someone bases their understanding, especially their faith, on evidence, and that evidence fails, sometimes their faith is shaken. Although the Bible itself is not a science textbook, when it refers to science or anything else, it is correct. I will stand on the fact that the Bible is the Word of God and it's unchanging. Isaiah 48 says the Word of God stands forever. Um, people have used the Bible as a source for their science, and Dr. Russell Humphreys based his predictions on the magnetic field of Neptune on the Bible and was proven correct. Hmm. Oceanographer Matthew Fontaine Morey used the phrase the paths of the sea in Psalm 8 in his work on ocean currents, wow. and that's uh, been invaluable. Using the Bible as a starting point is advanced science. Evolution has actually hindered science. Note that when we're discussing the creation week, we're not asking people to disbelieve actual scientific fact that can be demonstrated, tested, repeated, and verified. If I drop my computer, it will fall down, not up or sideways. Now, we're doubting the theories about the past made by people who were not there Theories that cannot be tested, repeated, measured, they can't be falsified, they are faith-based. I've been hit with questions like, what are your credentials to question evolution? I've put it to people who are asking things like that. If we're required to shut up and think what we're told by the experts, hmm. then they kind of dance around that, but that's what they really want. They want, I have to be a scientist to dare question evolution. And yet these people don't have credentials for doubting creationist scientists. <laughs> and for that matter, when they go and rail against the Bible itself, um, show me your theology degree. Some of the popular atheist authors have talked about a benevolent dictatorship of an atheist ruling elite. And I think such remarks stem from uh, that kind of an idea that you have to uh, bow to the power. And we know what happens when atheists gain power. I have some interesting screenshots of remarks where all Christians should be rounded up and put in Guantanamo Bay. And some people who answered my question on why it matters to them what I believe, it's because Christians may do things that their God tells them to do. So I'm being judged for something that I may do? <laughs> uh, that's a bit Stalin-esque as far as I'm concerned. Okay, well, so... But, but, you know, going back to the, the question of authority, I, I agree with you that the Bible needs to be uh, our starting point, our, our authority, and it needs to be the beginning of good science. Um, because whereas the interpretation of the material evidence is constantly changing, as you yourself have pointed out, Bob, it, it, it's done by people who weren't around to see its history unfold. Uh, the Bible, on the other hand, is unchanging and comes from God who was there. But still, 
many Christians who don't believe in young earth don't uh, don't disagree with that. They'll say, oh, we recognize the authority and inerrancy of Scripture, uh, but they'll go on to say that we have the capacity to misinterpret what it says sometimes. When the Bible says, as you pointed out, the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he set the world on them, such Christians might argue that were we to neglect the scientific evidence, we might wrongly conclude that the earth is flat and rests upon <laughs> uh, giant pillars. So what role, Bob, does general revelation play in our understanding of Scripture? Well, I would still stay with the standard that the the Bible is the Word of God and then to interpret from there. But I, I believe that the general revelation points to the Creator, and it's stated in Romans 1.12. I stated the context of Genesis is written as history, not as poetry and allegory. Context is extremely important. Some people say context is king. Now, is a phrase in question written in a poetic, prophetic, or apocalyptic sense? Bible haters love to take these things out of context and pre pretend that the Bible teaches a flat earth, for instance. But the immediate context, the societal, cultural, geographic, and other contexts play an important role in our understanding of scriptures. General revelation and the inner witness show the natural man that God is there, but they suppress this with philosophy, intellectualizing, and pride. How do we interpret what, what is written plainly? God created in six days. Jesus rose from the dead. Both are unusual circumstances that we, in a natural sense, shouldn't take at face value. Yet Genesis is doubted by some Christians, and they claim to accept the miraculous resurrection of Jesus. Yeah, it seems, it seems pretty inconsistent. Okay, that was part one of our three-hour-long discussion. Parts two and three will come out in the next couple of days. I'm sure you don't agree with everything that we've said, but I hope that you've listened with an open mind, and I hope that you'll listen to the next episode of the Theapologetics podcast when our discussion continues. Until then...